theyeshiva.net. Second column on top right, to Zion, second column. So, Daniel, the Gemara says in the Gilad of Gimel, that Daniel says that he saw, but the people didn't see, and yet they trembled, so the Gemara says they did not see, but their mazel, Afal gav di'iu lo yichazi mazlayu chazi. The mazel saw. What's the meaning of the mazel? The mazel is that not the entire neshama is manifested and enclosed in the body. Rather, a major part, most of the neshama is not in the body, meaning confined by the body. And yet it experiences many things, it sees things. And the word mazel means it causes a flow, a noisel, like a trickle. And very often, when we cannot contain experiences by the soul that's in our body, doesn't mean that the soul above our body does not experience some, something. And as it trickles down into the soul in the body, it overwhelms the person because we don't have the kalim to make sense of it. We don't have the kalim to internalize it. So Daniel who had the vessels to contain it, he didn't tremble, but the people with him, they can access it only on a level of mazel, beyond comprehension, because comprehension always comes from what? From the hispashtus of the nefesh and the guf. Once the nefesh is enclosed in the mind, and their mind was too small to contain that vision, that experience, because all hasaga only exists on the level where the soul is enclosed in the brain, and therefore I comprehend it, but that which I comprehend has to be able to suit my ability for comprehension. They did not have that. So what did, how, how did the experience express itself? In tremendous awe, in tremendous trem, in tremendous uh, trembling, in a tremendous charod. So he says, Mamash, the second line from the top to Zion, on the second column, page 31, it says, the same is true. With Giluyer in Sof Bebchinus Mazel, Shuhuan Hashama Shalamaylam is Lapshus Beguf representing the soul that is beyond being enclosed in the body. That Lefisha in Gilu Zebalide is Lapshus Lias Nitfas Venikladumayach Sichloi, since this experience cannot be internalized and grasped and absorbed. Nitfas means grasped, Niklat means absorbed in the mind of his intellect. In other words, he cannot wrap his brain around it, which means the soul, the way it is in the body, cannot make peace with it, cannot get it. Why can't it get it? Because it's too deep, it's too intense. So how does it express itself? In tremendous awe, or fear, or reverence, or trembling, or anxiety. The person experiences dread. Charoda means dread. Why? Not because it's a bad thing. Actually, it may be a beautiful thing. It may be a very good thing. But since Leis Machshavet Fisabe, this is how he concludes his, his explanation why Saiviv Kalalmin is called Saiviv. Why is it called Saiviv? Not because it's not in the world, it is in the world. But we don't feel it. And the reason we don't feel it is not because it's not here, it's because our vessels, our instruments cancel it out. And the reason we cancel it out is because we are mutually exclusive. The two are mutually exclusive. For the eye to experience it, the eye has to be able to be intact. Something which completely transcends the eye would overwhelm it and obliterate it. Because Soiviv Kalaman represents 
that dimension of divine energy that no thought can grasp it, no consciousness can grasp it. It's not God's energy the way it's limited and manifested, trickling down to the unique composition and makeup and chemistry of every individual creature, whether doimem, tzoymeach, chai, medaber. And therefore it's a, a granulated expression of divine energy. And what I mean is that it's literally divided and, 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 um, and uh, tailored, tailored and a cost, custom made for the individual makeup of every particular creature. This is Mamalikalaman. It fills the world's meaning that in our own consciousness it's relatable to our consciousness and actually it is our consciousness. That's granulated divine energy. Saiv of Kalalman is Shave or Mashva, it's not granulated. It encompasses all of the worlds identically. Why? Because it transcends all of them. Because if it transcends all of them, so therefore the highest is not closer to it than the lowest, because even the highest would not be able to grasp it in its own Kalim. So therefore its relationship with it is not one of a conscious relationship, but one of a superconscious, super sensory relationship. And therefore even the lowest world has the same contact with it and the same relationship with it. This is the marshal we gave, the difference between, just a marshal, it's not a perfect marshal, but it's a marshal, the difference between the teacher's function in the classroom and the commander-in-chief's function in the battlefield. Right? The teacher's function in the classroom, we're talking about the successful teacher, the caring teacher, the teacher who's a pedagogue. We know that there's different types of teachers in different types of classrooms. There's no need to elaborate on that, everybody went here through the system of education. Mark Twain said, I'll never allow my schooling to interfere with my education. But uh, besides that, we all know that the mission statement of a teacher is granulated information. It's not about be, being impressive or domineering. It's about penetrating the mind of the student. It's actually about the student. The Morris says, in Tainus, Harbe Lamadati Miraboisa, Yosem I've learned much from my teachers, more from my friends, and even more from, and most I've learned from my students because of the feedback. You wanted the Talmud, Talmud should understand. And every Talmud has a different IQ. And every Talmud has different sensibilities and sensitivities. And every Talmud thinks differently. And therefore, the Shir must be accustomed to the faculties of the student so that he should be able to internalize it. And just to scream at him, understand, because I'm telling you to understand, doesn't make somebody understand something. I cannot force somebody to understand. Why? Because by definition, understanding means you understand it. Me telling you to understand it is as me telling you feel. Feel. How can I tell you to feel? It's not something I could command you to do. Why? Because this has to do with your own makeup. I cannot impose it on you. It's not an external thing. So therefore... It must, I have to work with your faculties. That's a marshal from Amalekalam. The divine energy that is accustomed to the particular identity of the Niver. Saiv of Kalam, the example would be the commander-in-chief in the battlefield who looks at a million troops or a hundred troops or a thousand troops and says, go, or if they're doing a march, march, and everybody is marching identically and uniformly. How can it be so many different personalities? And the answer is because... The common denominator between them is not that they all appreciate or understand the message in the same way. The common denominator is the submission. The submission to authority, the submission to the country, the submission to the flag, 
And as a result of that, everyone is equal. Why is everybody equal? Because if I'm searching to accommodate their individual personalities, then nobody is equal. But if what I'm searching for is not the yeah, but the nisht, I'm not searching for the affirmation of self, but rather the transcendence beyond the self, here they can unite and integrate as one, and literally do exactly the same thing. March evenly, even though in terms of intellectual prowess or emotional, uh, emotional uh, experience, they vary drastically, and they may be from one extreme to another extreme. But nonetheless, in this nekuda of what we would call the bittel, the submission of all of the troops, of all of the soldiers to their, to their leader, to their general, to their commander-in-chief, here there is an absolute shava o mashva. No, well, this is not felt. That's the point. Oh. We're giving a marshal how, if he tells them to do it, right? Go. So somebody says, "But I don't understand." He says, "I don't care if you understand. I told you to do." And here, the two people can be extremely identical. In the shear, that doesn't work. I can tell you to do. I can't tell you to understand. Because what are we searching for in understanding? We're searching for your individuality. That's a marshal from a Malikalam. The commander-in-chief is a marshal. It's a marshal. It's not an accurate marshal. But it's a marshal for this relationship that what? That doesn't accommodate the individual personality and tone and heartbeat and sensitivity of each soldier. What does it search for? It encompasses all of them. It unites all of them by a singular mission that transcends any of them individually. And therefore, the most intelligent and the least intelligent actually appear and behave in complete unison. Since, since Daniel, anyway, didn't understand what he didn't, what he in, internalized was not so Kalman. He had a better uh, thing than, 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 than the, right. those who were with him. So, what did he gain by bringing this analogy to Daniel and the Malach Garin? What what point is now clear by virtue of his mentioning the, the whole story with Daniel? He anyway wasn't collate so I think it brings out the point what he started to say that he said a Lushan. In the beginning of the discussion, he said, In other words, this gives us a vivid marshal for the idea that something can be completely in you. It may define you. It may impact you dramatically. It may change you. But nonetheless, you cannot be aware of what it is. That's the marshal. The marshal is something is very, very powerful. It may be more powerful than any other force in the world, but you cannot wrap your brain around it and say, this is what it is, I can identify it. 
And this is a marshal of for Seva of Kalaman. Because Seva of Kalaman is really the same thing. It's not that the infinite energy of God that encompasses the whole world and is enclosed in everything in the world doesn't have an impact. It has a tremendous impact. But the impact is one that one can sometimes see its symptoms but not be able to identify its core or its source simply because our consciousness, as elevated as it is, our brains, our psyche, our minds, cannot detect it. And the reason we can't detect it is because it's, it's completely beyond it. So this is a muscle for what he gives. If you do see there is a parenthesis here that would actually a little contradict what I'm saying, if you see one, two, three, four, four lines from the top on Tazayim, this is, the parentheses were generally footnotes added by the Tzemach Tzedek, who was the grandson of the Baal Atanya, his daughter's uh, uh, son, and he succeeded his, uh, his grandfather after his father-in-law. It was the Baal Atanya passed away and his son took over. He was known as the Mittler Rebbe, Rabbi Doiv Ber. And when he passed away, the Tzemach Tzedek, his, his, his son-in-law and the Baal Atanya's grandson, it was, he was both a nephew. Uh, he was both a nephew of the Mittler Rebbe and a son-in-law of the Mittler Rebbe, and therefore a grandson of the Balatanya, both from himself and from his wife. So he wrote these footnotes when he published the Luka the Torah. So if you'll take a look, he says, Look what was written elsewhere, meaning the mimer of the Balatanya on the word Hazinu in Parshish Hazinu, Inyan Mazle, where he explains Mazel, that it represents the ayin, the nothingness which is beyond Chachma. Now this itself is a very powerful description. Ayin means nothingness. Why do we call it nothingness? Not because it doesn't exist. Because it exists in such a powerful way that we have no way of describing it. And whatever we have no way of describing, we call nothing. Right? It's like, for example, when you ask somebody, you know, your wife asks you, how are you feeling? Or what are you feeling? And you say nothing. Right? Now, sometimes that nothing is far, far from nothing. Because when you start talking... <laughs> That nothing is not so nothing. What do we mean sometimes? Nothing could mean two things. It could mean nothing, right? Nothing. It's nothing. But very often nothing means it's too much to talk about. Now sometimes we don't even identify that. We say it's nothing, right? Sometimes you look at somebody and say, what's going on in your life? Nothing. They're suffering from untold trauma. But they just say nothing. Why do they say nothing? Either because they don't trust you, so they're not going to tell you. Or because there's really, there's so no way of dealing with it that the only thing I could say, the best description is nothing. You couldn't possibly understand it. Right, it's just nothing. So in, 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 in Hasidus, that which is higher than Chachma, we call Ayin. Not because it's nothing, it's much more. But because it's super conscious, it's super sensory. So it's nothing. Not because, not because it's nothing, because I don't have a way to deal with it. So the best way to describe it is it doesn't exist. It's much easier to dismiss it as non-existent than to acknowledge it and then have to have to break down the walls of my personality and expand my horizons to be able to contain it. It's just too much. I say it's nothing. It's ayin. Ayin is lamay lameha chachma. Chachma is the first trickle of consciousness. Always. Chachma is the first trickle of consciousness. It's called chachma. What we would call the insight, the inspiration, the aha moment, the epiphany. Where did the epiphany come from? I don't know. It came from somewhere. We say, I don't know. Why do we say, I don't know, right? We say, I don't know. You know, when people start saying, I don't know, of course they know. But it's easy to say, I don't know. The epiphany comes from a place where we say, I don't know. Because I have no oasis for it, and I don't want to go there. It's not easy to go there. That's mazel. So when we say mazel, it's that space of the self 
that is beyond the conscious self, and that trickles down. It creates a mazel, it's mazel down into the conscious, into the conscious self. Now, if you were to ask an academic or a psychologist who knows this stuff, and you would say, who introduced this idea that most experiences, or at least many experiences of man, are subconscious, and yet the little bit of our subconscious self trickles down to the consciousness, that which we could contain and we can grasp. All these ideas are attributed to uh, uh, Freud, Sigmund Freud, who died in 1939, so lived just a few decades ago. But really, you see, you could see literally, almost by the oisius, in Lashon Kaidish and not mamish in psychological terms, but almost word for word, you just saw here in this mimer, almost word for word, literally, that the main self is higher than being experienced. All hasaga comes from the nefesh that comes into the mayach. Most of the nefesh is out of the mayach, so there's no hasaga, there's no way of grasping it, of experiencing it, and yet it has a major impact, and much of man's fears and this comes from that, because we cannot wrap our brains around it. So what did Daniel have more than the other people? Well, Daniel was Daniel. Daniel was a prophet, and his entire self was expansive. He understood more. So therefore, what, what for one person would be saiviv, that's the key. Saiviv could sometimes be relative, meaning what for one person would be saiviv is for the other person mamale. Which is how the Balatanya explains the concept of emuna versus yediyah. In Judaism, there's two concepts, right? There's viadaita hayam, there's knowing God, and then there's belief, emuna. And it's complicated to understand what's the role of each. We discussed this in the emuna. So in other words, if there's knowledge, you don't need emuna. What is emuna? Emuna is a very hard thing to understand because what's emuna? Is emuna based on rational uh, information or is it based on irrational information? If it's irrational, then who needs it? Then it's not a good thing. In other words, it could be corrupted. Because then what's the, what distinguishes between a believer and a cult member? Which is an important question. Uh, in other words, uh, are you a member of a cult? Am I a member of a cult? Are we members of cults? So just asking that question is a good sign because usually cult members don't like asking hmm. that question. So that itself is, is, is fine. It gives us a little hope. But the, the truth is, in other words, if something makes sense, you don't have to believe it. And if it doesn't make sense, so why are you believing it? Because your grandmother said. So this is a, a question in Machshavah Sisra, what's the role of Amuna? What's the role of Yediyah? And the Rishonim already argued about it. What's better, what's superior, what's greater, and so forth. But there is a place in the Kutatari of Eschana where the Balatanya says that Amuna and Yediyah are all relative. In other words, what for one person is Amuna is for another person Yediyah. And what for one person is Yediyah is for another person Amunah. And that's how he explains the concept of Amunah L'Asad Lava. It's interesting. Somebody once asked the Brisker of, Revelvel Brisker, if there's going to be Amunah when Mashiach comes. Because Amunah is based on belief. But if you could see, even Nikola Kvayda Hashem, you don't need Amunah. So the Brisker of gave what I guess could be defined as a classic Brisker response. He said, Amunah is a mitzvah. And mitzvahs will never be nullified. Emunah is a mitzvah. There's a mitzvah to have emunah. And mitzvahs are not obliterated when Mashiach comes. So it's a good briskevart. In other words, emunah is a mitzvah. There's a din of emunah. Right. But he didn't explain the mechanism. <laughs> the vart is a geshmak vart. We can get it. It's a mitzvah, and the mitzvah exists. It doesn't go away. But what's the mitzvah? Fine, it's a mitzvah. What's the mitzvah? The mitzvah is, it's a mitzvah to see that the wall is blue, if it's obvious. So the Balatanya explains that the Yediyah will be much higher, so the Emunah will also be relegated to a space 
which is completely transcendent. So Emunah never competes with Yediyah, just like Soiv doesn't compete with Mamalek. There are two streams of Judaism that never compete with each other, and therefore should never be threatened by each other. Faith, real faith, is never threatened by real intellect. If it is, you have to be cautious. You have to be cautious, because it's a slippery road. Real Amuna is not competing with Yediyah. It's not afraid of it, it doesn't bash it, it doesn't it doesn't feel that using the intellect is a curse. It doesn't feel that the intellect is the worst enemy of man, on the contrary. So what is it then? It's relating to that which Yediyah must acknowledge its limitations. So that's an example here. So for what one person could be saved is for another person, mamale, and conversely. So the Tzamech Tzedek says here in this parenthesis, so now we can understand if the mazel is ayin, so soiviv can be expressed to the mazel. Now what does he mean here? He doesn't mean, of course there's a concept of soiviv that doesn't get expressed in mazel, because he said and even atzilis can't grasp it. So he's not suddenly reinventing the wheel and saying, oh, on a level of mazel, everybody experiences soiviv. But in other words, the soiviv could be relative. What do I mean it could be relative? If you were to put in to one person the consciousness of another person, they would be obliterated. Just like if you'll take the brain of a human being, right, and put it into another creature, it might obliterate him because every energy has to be filtered according to the product you want to create with this energy. And if you uh, create a superdose, it, uh, there's overdose on many levels. The voltage is too high. So therefore, there's something that Mazel can experience that nothing else can experience, that my conscious self can't. And Daniel could experience it in his conscious self, and therefore he wasn't ought. But of course, there's a side of that not. It's clearer. So if someone expands this understanding, expands the kill, he's going to get more Of course, of course, of course. That's the, that's the key. That's the point, yeah. Well, you're using the word mazel. Not, I mean, he'll get more direction. He'll be able to open himself up to the, to the immediate experience of it, not just to the, not just to the residue, not just to the impact of it. So, can someone make more or without expanding the kale? How? I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, they will not be able to experience it. They have to open their kale to it. I don't know, just studying. It's an internalization process. You could study facts. It's not about studying facts. It's an internalization process. It's like in the Seelix Sharm. Like in the Seelix Sharm, you go along a certain road. Steps from the end of Saita. Right. Now there's a famous marshal. There's a famous marshal that brings this out very well. Namely... It's a muscle that was actually used by a man named Heisenberg. He, he, they say that he used it with Einstein in a correspondence or a conversation with Professor Albert Einstein. In the 1930s, they were both Jews, Heisenberg and, and Einstein, great physicists. And there was a big argument then about something called quantum mechanics. Einstein was a very uh, big opponent of the concept. He said, God doesn't play dice with the universe. I don't want to get into the details of the argument. Today, uh, today Heisenberg's Worldview has been embraced, I think, quite uh, by every ah. Uh? 
by most, yeah, yeah, all the elements of uh, quantum mechanics, modern physics. So uh, the absurdities, basically, the absurdities of subatomic particles. So they say that uh, that Heisen, I heard this from my brother once, that Heisenberg gave a marshal to Einstein in order to explain to him how flawed his view is, which turns out Heisenberg was right today. I think Kula Alma that he was right at least in some instances. And the marshal was a very profound marshal, simple but profound. He said, you remind me of a fisherman who decided to ascertain how many fish and what types of fish are in the Pacific. So he builds this huge hypothetical net, puts it in the ocean, leaves it there, I don't know, for months, and then lifts up the net, and he comes out with a declaration to the world that there are no fish smaller than nine inches. He becomes the laughingstock of everyone and everybody, because in your own dining room and living room, you have a fish tank, right, with fish that are far smaller than nine inches. They're called goldfish and many other fish. And the science, this fisherman maintained that he was right. <laughs> he was absolutely right, and he wasn't lying. Heisenberg said there was only one problem. The holes in the net were nine inches long. And because the holes in the net were nine inches long, there were really no fish smaller than nine inches in the net, meaning the instruments we use to determine reality will always determine the nature of reality that we determine as a result of those instruments. But very few of us will ever go and challenge the instruments that we initially employ to determine reality. So each of us has a net, and we walk around with that net our entire life. And the fact that my net has nine, each net is made up of nine inches, holes of nine inches, that I don't challenge. That's my net. That's my instrument to define reality. For example, when you meet people, who do you define as normal, who do you define as crazy? I have a net, right? You fit in, you don't fit in. I'll never go back and say, you know, maybe my holes are nine inches, maybe I can't detect certain realities. That's an obvious. Now I walk around, I see that there's no fish smaller than nine inches. I'm convinced that I'm right. And you know what? I am right. Based on the instruments I'm using, I'm 100% right. I'm arguing with you, but I'm not really arguing with you because most arguments between people are not arguments. They're just using different instruments to determine reality. That's the fact, truth about most arguments. Not all arguments, but most arguments. It's very seldom that you have a genuine argument in the world. Everyone is just using their own nets. So the question is, can one really challenge those nets? Can you go back to the drawing board and say, you know, maybe I'm using the wrong net. But you will see most of our convictions, conceptions, especially perceptions about others or about realities, they are guided directly and explicitly by my net. And we all have that net. What creates your net for you? Oh, that you'll ask your therapist. What creates? There's nature and there's nurture, Right? There's, there's all, all factors of life. Whatever creates you, creates your net. How do I walk around judging the world? And that's a very, that's a serious issue. So my net is my net. Saif of Kalaman doesn't fit into that net. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. How does it exist? My thought can, my, my, my machshava doesn't grasp it. My machshava doesn't grasp it. I don't acknowledge it. That means it doesn't fill me. Of course it fills me. But I don't know that it fills me because my eye has a net, and that net doesn't grasp infinity. And because it doesn't grasp infinity, so it dismisses it as non-existent. Where Mamalik suits the holes of my net. It's the fish that's large enough 
or in this case it's small enough to be compressed to be compressed in my identity so at least I have some some uh, some sensitivity to it so therefore it's really about the ability for a person to be able to challenge the very paradigms the very nets that we use to catch to catch our fish but that's an let's face it it's an uncomfortable question for people are the nets may be completely off completely this is why um, Judaism puts, puts, puts such focus on humility to nullify yourself once you only nullify <clears throat> that's essentially what Bittl really means <clears throat> Bittl really means acknowledging the possibility first acknowledging the possibility that the holes in my net cannot relate to certain fish and therefore they don't exist in my life acknowledging that possibility once I acknowledge that possibility I can then open myself up to a different possibility that is, that is essentially what humility means. Humility is that power to be able to look up and acknowledge that. If I cannot acknowledge that, then, uh, then I, I cannot open myself up to it. Now here is the real question. Many people argue, I'll say this bluntly, that religion, religion is the most uptight net in the world because you are educated with a certain net and you judge everybody based on that. So everybody gets a checklist, you know. Either you make it or you don't make it. Because we have holes, eh? You're, you're koifer, you're maimon, you're apikoyris, you're not. You're from, you're fry. You're modern, you're, you're, you're haredi. You're, you're black, you're white. You're, fundam- you're in, you're out. You're bentoyri, not bentoyri. And sometimes you have conversations with people and they mean well, but those nets are complete idolatry. Completely idolatry. I don't mean idolatry in the classical sense of worshiping pagan. Maybe I do. But uh, it, it's, in other words, it's, completely, it's complete indoctrination. It is absolutely... The first definition we know about God is that there's no definition. So that's the humility. Humility is... This doesn't mean a person doesn't have a position. It doesn't mean there's no right and wrong. It's not about moral relativism. It's not about, uh, you know, being so open-minded that your brains fall out. That's the other extreme. That in the in in the you see this is really very po- this this is what we call today post modernity meaning there's a level of sophistication where everything gets destroyed because these conversations can destroy everything because basically you dismiss everybody's view as just coming from their net so there's ultimately no truth in the world which is very common today in universities and then your own huh and then your own and then your own. You are completely your own. You're no, free. No. Then you wind up destroying your own, no, your own net. Right, yeah. and you make yourself crazy. Of course, well, of course. You're using a net to say that statement. <laughs> Destroy the net. You're using a net. It's sort of it becomes endless, and the most, and therefore, in university life, the most convenient conclusion for all of this is never speak about truth. Just speak about opinions, because all opinions, all truths are just opinions. He's a terrorist. No, you think so. He's a freedom fighter. From his perspective, from his, you have your net, of course. Your net is your net. I remember I was once speaking to Brandeis students, so the guy couldn't tell me that Hitler's behavior was evil. I say, but he killed six million Jews. He's like, I don't like what he did, but you know, we do kill mice. <laughs> like, why mice? Maybe mice are also as as valuable as as Jews. Like, why don't you call yourself evil for having a mouse trap in your house? You intentionally kill mice. You understand? Now here is a 19-year-old, good-looking, handsome, intelligent, athletic, 
good, probably kind, respectful, tolerant student. Uh, but and a Jew and a Jew and a Jew and a Jew. So this is very common today. It's extremely common today. It's like the issue with ICE is about gun control. This has to do with gun control, like Nazi Germany. Like you tell me, the problem of the Holocaust was that you could buy guns in Germany. That was the problem of the Holocaust. You understand? You're dealing with a situation where there's no parameter of truth. So that's the danger. That's the value of, of old-style religion. But it's where liberal open-mindedness mocks it because it's stuck in, uh, in such paradigms that are completely very, very primitive. You know, right and wrong are based on very primitive conventions. In many ways, I would say that these texts here in Lekhut Torah have a very revolutionary combination. In many ways, they speak a language that's very postmodern in the sense of understanding how everything can be broken down to a point where really all the nets that we take so seriously are just that. Right? And yet, what it does is it opens us up to a definition of truth that is beyond definition. In other words, it opens us up to a view of Torah that is not uh, built on narrowness, but is built on the ultimate expansiveness. And that's, I think, a very valuable contribution in our days, because you find two extremes. You have those who are etched in modern thinking, and everything gets broken down. There's nothing that's sacred anymore, because everything is just perspective. You know, it's your mother's perspective, your grandmother's perspective, including the value of getting married, including the value of having children. Everything. It's all, everybody's just using nets. And stop being a bigot. Stop imposing your lifestyle on me. And there is value to that thought because we are all using nets. It's true. And then there's the other extreme, you know, where we just have our net and you fit in or you don't fit in. You know, you're, you're, you're eating for cholent if you don't fit in. So again, you're out, you're ostracized socially or academically. And we're finding a revolt against this today. So I, I just, I'm pointing out that I think this is a very uh, subtle, subtle, very valuable ideas here about how we have to break down the net as a preparation not to break down all boundaries, but actually to experience truth that is not defined by the limits of our ego and even our intellectual imagination. You get what I'm saying? Okay, because I don't. <laughs> I'm glad somebody does. I'll teach you later. <laughs> What did I answer to that student? What am I supposed to answer? What am I supposed to answer? Wow. I'll tell you what happened. When I was eating chicken, an hour later, he turned to me and he says, you eat chicken? I'm like, yeah. Why not? So, unconsciously, he says, that's pretty evil. I'm like, why? He says, do you know what they do to the chickens? You know, he goes into the whole thing. So I'm like, you know, you may be right. You may be right that eating chicken is a really, really bad thing. And I have had my uh, many thoughts about this. I, I don't take it lightly that we eat meat and we eat chicken. I don't think it's such a simple thing. I get it. Other Mauritian was not supposed to eat meat and chicken. Fine. I said, what I find so interesting is that Hitler, Hitler's behavior, first of all, I didn't say that. Hitler's behavior you can't call evil. Eating chicken you could call evil. Explain that to me. So I told them, I'm going to give you now free analysis of yourself. Okay? You know that there's good and evil. You know it in your depth of your heart. Okay? 
the generation that stopped calling Hitler evil because it's not sophisticated, because everything is relative, that generation also needs to know that there's good and evil. So you're the generation that started to call eating chicken evil because everybody knows there's good and evil. When you stop calling that evil, you start calling other things evil. You understand? So that's it. That's what I told them. I said, you should realize, because you know there's good and evil, it's just you replaced it. Instead of looking at murderers who will murder millions of people without, without blinking an eye, you'll call that evil and try to make the world a better and safer place. You will misdirect your evil so badly that your definitions will become so warped and uh, you will destroy the world. And I don't know if he understood what I said, or he didn't understand what I said, but that's what I told him. <laughs> if you want to know what I told him. There was in the New York Times, uh, you gave me on Sunday, there was a whole article, somebody is explaining if Trump is like Hitler or not like Hitler. Now, Trump could be whoever he is. It's completely irrelevant. Whatever you want to call him. But I found the Shaklavataria very, very repulsive. Very repulsive. Here's a man who caused the death of, I don't know, 10, besides Jews, 10 or 20 million people in the most barbaric, sadistic way in the history of humanity, right? Here is a man who wants to bad Muslims. Okay, let's say it's evil. Build a wall. Okay, let's say it's evil. Outlaw, punish black who give abortion. Let's say it's evil. But you understand, they're, 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 they're putting it on the same page that shows that you're dealing with a breakdown of uh, common sense, which for them is not a breakdown of common sense. It's an expansive consciousness. It's an open-minded consciousness where everybody that fits into the term bigotry and intolerance goes into one group. So that's Bibi Netanyahu, Hitler, and Trump all together in one group. You know what I mean? That's a very tragic symptom of post-modernity, which comes from, 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 uh, from progress. But the progress creates an absolute churva, an absolute churva. You type is what I'm saying. It's not so complicated. But it's very complicated when you're in that world. So this world is a protected world here at Fershay, you know. But uh, out there, kids who go to campuses and universities... This is the this is conventional conversation. This is not uh, this is conventional conversation. And then you have I once gave a lecture on Pesach, and I said that whatever your position about going to the army is, whether you believe that yeshiva boys should go to the army, or you believe that yeshiva boys protect their Yisrael through sitting and learning and they should be exempt from the army, whatever your position is, every yeshiva bacha when he sees a soldier should say thank you. And the reason is, because then every Musa Shmuz, everybody talks about Akaris Atoiv, Akaris Atoiv. But that doesn't mean if somebody gives you a tissue box, you say thank you. It means if somebody is on the front lines and they're dying, because so you should be able to live and learn, you go over to a soldier and you say thank you so much for doing what you do. That's what I said. I think that's a very normal, rational, Jewish, Torah, refined thing to say. I think the Chafetz Chaim would have said that. I think any, whatever, I think it's normal. A yeshiva, a few guys, I'm not going to say which yeshiva in Israel, but a good yeshiva, a nice yeshiva, I know the yeshiva well. They start screaming. They start screaming that these soldiers, 
I'm gonna, I, it's hard for me to say the Bachas is worse than the Arabs. When they come to our neighborhoods, the hate that they show us is worse than the hate of the Arabs. So this is a Bach. I said, you know, I don't blame you for speaking such nonsense because you're indoctrinated. It's not even your fault. You're brainwashed. I only bless you that in a, you shouldn't get lost. If you have to get lost in Israel, don't get lost in a neighborhood of Arabs. Get lost in a neighborhood of Israeli soldiers. That's my blessing to you. You'll see, you'll see, you'll get lost in the neighborhood of Arabs. I hope you'll never see who hates you more. I said, I hope you'll never see it. But where does this come from? How can somebody speak like this? So it's all part of the net. Tazai in the second column, right? Al Yirig Doyle Kazu. You see Tazayan, column two, page thirty one, one, two, three, four, five, six, six lines from the top. Al Yirig Doyle Kazu. On this type of awe that is basically transcendental, meaning it's beyond, what do we mean by transcendental? It's beyond that which can be wrapped, it can, it can be grasped by the mayach, by the mind of one's intellect. There are those experiences that you could wrap your brain around, literally, your, that's called hasaga. The word hasaga, lahasig, actually doesn't mean comprehension. It means to be masig something means to reach something. Like we say lahasig, right? We have in Parshish Kisava, vihisigucha kol they should reach you, they should reach you. So actually lahasig means that which is in your reach, it's in your hasaga, but we, we use it for something that we understand, because something that we understand, we reach it. We have the holes in our net that can take it, that can detect it, that can comprehend it. That which is Lamaila Masaka means it's beyond reach because I don't get it. I cannot wrap my brain around it. It it slips through my holes because I don't have the parameters for it. So he says, <coughs> only Bibchinas Mazlayu. So Amru on this the Chazal tell us him ain't chachma, ain't yira. If there's no chachma, there's no yira. We learned before, stira, Chazal say, So what do you begin with? You say, if there's no Chachma, there's no Yira. If there's no Yira, there's no Chachma. But I can't have Chachma without Yira. So what do you begin with? So he says, this Yira G'dayla, you say, it's not going to be without Chachma. First there has to be Chachma, and then there could be Yira. K'may Shekosov, the Pasuk says, in Ve'eschanan, V'yitzaveinu Hashem Lasa says, Kalachukim Ha'ela, Li'yira Hashem. Hashem told us to do all these chukim to yir. In other words, the chukim bring to yir. It's not that the yir is the cause of the chukim. If you have yir, it's Hashem. You do what He wants. It's deeper than that. The chukim bring to yir as Hashem. In other words, the chachmas of Torah and the observance of Torah brings to yir. Shaliyoyz gilu yizab abchines mazlayu. Atshet tiplul of ema bapachad huayidei esek ha-Torah. Because that a person should even be able to allow his mazel, which is the soul that's beyond his body, the soul that is supersensory, to be able to experience what the mazel can experience to the point that it should trickle down and he should experience awe. This happens through the Eisek HaTorah, through the involvement in Torah. What's the connection? 
Torah, the Zohar has an expression that Torah comes from Chachma. What Pshat Torah comes from Chachma? Torah is rooted in Hashem's Chachma, Hashem's wisdom. Vahavaya Bechachma, the Pasuk says in Mishlei, Hashem Bechachma Yasad Eretz. Hashem founded the earth with Chachma. So he uses this as a just as a catalyst to explain that Hashem is in Chachma. In other words, The presence of the Ein Saif dwells and is revealed in Chachma. Why in Chachma? Chachma is two words. Koyach, Ma. Chachma is Chof, Ches, Mem, He. Koyach, Ma. This also comes from Zoya, Tikuni Zoya. It's the Koyach of Ma. What does Ma mean? Ma means what? Like Moshe Rabbeinu says in Parshas B'Shalach, V'nachnu mo kisalinu alav. Me and I, what are we? Like you say, ma, chacham ma'u oimer, right? Rasha ma'u oimer. Ma means what? So what's chacham? Chacham is the koyach of ma. The koyach of what? Now what does that mean, the koyach of what? So he says, p'chines bitl. It's basically the koyach of bitl. That's what ma is. V'nachnu ma. What are we? I don't have a definition for it. I, all I could say is what. The question what represents a state of humility. And therefore, She'ein o'yrein soif baruch hu sheiru mizgala elab bottle. Now here is the cloud. There will never be a revelation of the infinite energy of God only in that which is bottle. Only in a place of complete nullification will there be a manifestation of the divine. Wherever there is arrogance and egotism, there will never be a gili of Eirein Tzayv Baruch Hu. what is the ultimate place? This is Torah. Shehi Chachmasa is Baruch Mamash. Torah is literally his Chachma. V'hu v'chachmasa echad. This is a Rambam's expression. He and his Chachma are one. Ki hu amade v'hu ayedeya. He is the knowledge, he is the knower, and he is the known. And therefore... In Torah, we say, Oiraisa comes from Torah, and Havaya is in Chachma, because the Ein Saif dwells in Chachma. The primary Gili of this is in the source of Torah, because Torah exists on so many different levels. The source of Torah, which is Chachma, which is basically the highest level, Hashem is Chachma. The Torah down here, sometimes a person may not experience the Ein Saif in it, even though it's also the same Torah. But in the source, that is the Torah. This is in the state of Mazel. Just like we spoke in the person, the Mazel of the Neshama trickles down to the Neshama in the Gulf, and that creates the Aim, and the same is with Torah. The source of Torah is Chachmeila. Over there, Ein Saif dwells and is revealed in the most manifested way. That's the, to speak, the Mazel of Torah. But the Torah that we learn, the Torah that we grasp, is the Torah the way it comes down in Olam HaSiyah, in a concrete world, we learn Pshat. But nonetheless, the source of Torah is Mazel, it trickles down the Hashpa to the Torah that we have, that is Malubashas Begashmi, it's just like the Etzim HaNashama is Mazel, the source of Torah is also called Mazel, because from the source of Torah there's a flow of the Eir Hashem and the Torah that we have here, and that's why this Torah by Itzavenu Hashem Lassus is called Chukim Hashem, this level of year of Mazlayu Chazi comes through Torah because the Torah is linked 
Torah, just like by a person, there's the subconscious and the conscious. There's the superconscious and the conscious. Torah also has the conscious of Torah and the superconscious of Torah. The Torah that we don't access directly, most of us. But the, the, but our Torah is a, is a trickle of that Torah. It's a reflection of that Torah. So when that something happens in that Torah, something also is affected in our Torah that we learn, and it could create this level of yira. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, shot, yeah, shot of Torah, any Torah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, what's this idea that Chachma is Koyach Ma, and Torah is basically Chachma? So, here we have to understand a little bit about Chachma, which is a frequent term that's used, Bechlal in in Torah Sanister, especially by the Balatanya, Chassidus, especially by the Balatanya, all all Sifri Chassidus really, but. Here it's very elaborate, this concept. What is this concept of Chachma? The Zoyer just says Koyach Ma. It's a Koyach of what? what? What do we mean, the Koyach of what? Generally, in the cognitive faculties of a person, the Balatanya explains, based on Sefer Yitzirah, based on uh, many Sifri Kabbalah, there's Chachma and Bina and Das. Those are the first three faculties of the human soul, which are conscious, and they're called cognitive. Then you have the seven Midas, which are more emotional. Chesed and Gvura, Tiferes, Netzach, Chayd Malchus. But the first three, with the famous acronym of Chabad, Chachma, Bina, Das, basically represent the first three cognitive faculties. There's something beyond Chachma, like we learned yesterday, there's the Ayin beyond Chachma, the Mazel, that's known as Keser, but that's already superconscious. In terms of cognition, what a person is aware of in the soul, the first experience is Chachma, then is Bina, then is Das. What's the difference between Chachma bin Adaz? To translate, Chachma is conception. Bina is comprehension. Das is application. And the three are very different experiences, diff- three different modalities, really, of cognition. One is like conception, literally like the conception of, uh, of a seed, where the woman, the mother, the feminine, conceives a seed, all you have at that moment is a microscopic seed that will, hopefully, flesh out into a full-fledged fetus. But that takes nine months. After that, there is the development. It has to be conceived. It has to, <coughs> it has to become, it has to develop together with the egg and into an embryo, into, into something that will become a child, which then grows and grows and grows, and then there's birth. Bina is comprehension. It's the development of the seed. It's the growth of the seed. It's femininity. The mother is called Bina, Ima. Av is always associated with Chachma. Like the father contributes the sperm, the seed, and that's basically the beginning and the end of his contribution. Without the mother working through quite a while with quite a lot of pain and nausea and birth and and then raising a child for 60 years till he becomes mature... Uh, nothing really happens. We all know that. So you know, at 60, some of us, some of us. So that's the father's contribution. Is spiritually speaking, is called chachma. What, what's this? These are just these are just physical manifestations of ideas. But the truth is, the physical manifestations are those ideas. The way they come down in a physical way. What is the idea of chachma? Let's talk about it cognitively. Say a person learns a piece of Gemara or really any book, any text that's maybe difficult. It's not what. The point is something that's not easily understandable. 
So sometimes you get it. You get it on one level. Sometimes you just don't get it. You learn it again, 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 again. Five times. Not because you don't know the language. You know the language. You don't know the language, you have to learn the language. You know the language, you know the text, you know the, you know, you're familiar with the, with the vocabulary. That's not the issue. The issue is the idea is not going in. We all have this, or you have a tremendous dilemma in life, and you have no way of solving it. A question, a dilemma, a problem, a struggle. I'm talking here intellectually. I'm not talking here anxiety, that's a separate issue. That's middas, we're talking here on a level of awareness. A person is learning and they just don't get it. They're trying, they're trying, they're horroring, they're steiging, as we would say. They're toiling, but they don't get it. And you read it again, you read it again, you read it again. We're not talking about a person who gives up, and you still don't have it. And then, you're walking in the street. And boom, there's a flash. We call it the light bulb, right? It goes off. The aha moment, the epiphany. It's like an inspirational insight. You may be sitting on a couch, you may be lying in bed, you may be taking a walk, you may be eating something. Usually you don't even realize that you were thinking about that topic. It's like almost you're walking in the street and you're unconsciously engulfed by that dilemma, by that question. You're like daydreaming about it. And then from nowhere, pop, this pops in. In fact, the Balatanya compares it to a lightning. He calls it a Baruch HaMavrik. If you ever in the wilderness, say in the Catskills, on a dark summer night, without any light, like some streets in Muncie, we're really without any light. Not like city with his lights everywhere. And it's pouring rain and it's pitch dark and then a lightning goes off. And suddenly, it says in Zoya, there's a light. Where did the light come from? We don't know. We do know, but we don't know. In other words, we know where it comes from, but we can't identify the source. It comes from a place called Koyach HaMaskel, a place called Keser, unconscious. On the unconscious level, the person knows the answer. But that answer was too deep for the conscious brain to access. Chachma is that moment, the flash, the flash of inspiration, the flash of insight, the lightning that goes off in your brain, and suddenly you have this moment where you say, I got it. So somebody says, you got it? Tell it to me. I can't say it yet. Write it down. I can't write it down. I don't know what I got and how I got, but I know I got it. You know that feeling? Anybody who's involved in seichel, in learning new things, if you're just reading the sports section, this doesn't happen. Because it, it's just this score, that score. It's not, you're not going to have new ideas that you have to tackle with all due respect to the world of sports. But if, if somebody is challenging themselves with new texts that are difficult, they're just reading cereal boxes, you know, or this, you're not going to have this experience. But if somebody's challenging themselves with new texts that, that, that defy them, that that challenge them, that they're not accustomed to. They're learning new stuff, new ideas, new concepts, new gemaras, new svarim, whatever it is, new chachma. This process is inevitable. Then is stage two. What's stage two? Stage two is, you had an insight, take it, flesh it out. Write it down, think about it. You're basically taking a sperm, you're taking a seed, and you're developing it. You're revealing what, it's all in the seed. But now you have to take that seed and allow it to grow and blossom. And it fleshes out. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, there's a structure, there's an idea, there's a question, there's an answer, there's a proof. So it always starts with that nekuda, a seminal, seminal point. The Russian seminal is from like semen, a nekuda. And then the nekuda becomes bina, which is expansiveness. 
Now, let's take this a step deeper now. This is really where uh, the, the richness of the Balatanya's Machshava comes into play. Why does it work this way? See, that's how it happens. Why does it work this way? Why it works this way is very profound. Whenever two things have a relationship with each other, there's always a question. Who is dominant? Always a question. Or as we say in English, who wears the pants in the house? Because whenever you have two different things converging, one has to yield. Right? If I'm going driving into the highway, they say yield. Why? If not, you're going to have a head-and-head collision. If two people are working together closely, if two people enter into a relationship, who is the dominant one and who is the subservient one? You say an AT&T salesman came to a house one night and he rings the bell and the woman comes to the house. I mean, the husband, the man comes to the house and the guy says, you know, I'm looking for the master of this home. I have this great new sale, but I need to speak to the master of the home. Who is the master of the home? So the guy says, you know, you came exactly at the right moment. Wait five minutes, because that exact question is being decided in the kitchen right now. You know? <laughs> so, so everybody understands, in any normal, healthy relationship, it's called compromises. What do we mean compromises? I compromise to you, you compromise to me. Sometimes I have it my way. Sometimes you have it your way. Sometimes we learn to agree. Sometimes I give up a little bit, you give up a little bit. That's how it works with partners in a business. You know, you... You, you try to divide responsibilities. You have your things, I have my things, so we don't clash. And things that we don't clash, you work it out. It's called civil conversations, compromises, pshares. Why do you have to do this? The answer is because I'm not living alone. If I'm living alone on an island, I don't have to compromise. When I'm with you in a relationship, there's different personalities. There's always a clash of personalities, a clash of perspectives, a clash of emotions, a clash of interests, a clash of agendas, etc. I don't have to elaborate, so everyone has to understand, I give, you give, etc. But whenever two things meet, the question is, who is going to overwhelm the other? Who is going to be the domineering force? Who is going to be the subservient force? Or both will be domineering and both will be subservient. You know the t-shirt that reads, I'm very easy to get along with once you learn to worship me. Because basically, you know, if you learn to worship me, I'm very easy to get along with because there's no you, there's just I. It's wonderful. The problem is if there's an I and there's a you, who wins? Is it I or is it you? Or is it one day I, one day you? One hour I, one hour you? Etc. What is understanding? Understanding is a relationship. A relationship between my mind and an idea. Or to use terminology of the Rambam, Yoidea and Yodua. Maskil and Muskel. Maskil is me, my mind. Muskel is the idea. I'm learning the Rebakiva Eger. This is Rebakiva Eger and this is me. And I'm trying to build a relationship with Rabbi Kivayga's Chiddush. Or with the Toysvus, or with the Rashi, with the piece of Gemara, or whatever I'm learning. Whatever text I'm learning, La Havla could be mathematics. There is my mind, and then there is the text, the idea, the wisdom, the information, the data. And we're trying to get married. What do I mean get married? We're trying to build a relationship. I want this to become part of me, I want to become part of it. There's the masculine, there's the muscle. Here's the question who wins? Who is the dominating force in understanding? Is it the mind that ultimately captures the idea and dominates the relationship? Or is it the idea that dominates the relationship? The answer is there's two stages. There's the stage of Chachma, there's the stage of Bina. In the stage of Chachma, 
the idea defines the relationship. In the state of Bina, the human mind defines the relationship. What does this mean? Why is it that I learned the Gemara ten times and I don't get it, and suddenly I got it? What happened? I went for brain surgery. What happened? To use Hasidic terminology, what happened was as follows. A seven-ounce cup cannot contain a hundred ounces of water. Try pouring a hundred ounces of water. It will go all over the place besides in the cup. Now there's a cup and there's a cup. There's a seven-ounce cup and there's a seven-ounce cup. When I mean this cup, I don't mean literally seven ounces, but every brain has what we would call the brain power, the brain capacity. It's also a seven-ounce cup. I don't mean, again, seven-ounce cup, but every brain has its koyach, its parameters. You have your brain, I have my brain. Now, what's in a brain is beyond what we will imagine and certainly what we're going to be discussing today, what's in a human brain. Today, it's cutting-edge uh, research, what a human brain is made of, what a brain is made up of. The nephloyus of a brain are beyond what anybody could even mind staggering, even what we know, never mind what we don't know. Never mind what we don't know, we don't know. But the tzad hashave is, a brain is a keli. It's a tremendous keli. And it's a keli that's suitable to be able to conceive ideas. But it has its limitations. My cup has limitations. This text is beyond me. It's seven ounces, and this text is a hundred ounces. It's not going in. My brain has walls. The walls say, I'm sorry, I don't get you. I try again, I try again, I try. It's a gate What did your teacher say? What did the cup mean? What the cup mean? Literally means the cup is fashtopped. It's plugged. You can't put anything in. Why can't you put anything in? Because it's plugged. So I know that expression may not be the most nurturing and confident uh, building one, but the idea is it's a plugged head. Clay reikon machze, clay malayene machze. Just like somebody who's addicted to video games for six hours a day, you start talking to them ideas, they go crazy. That's why one of the hardest things today in yeshivas is giving shiurim to people, right? Because between texting and this, people are not used to the concept of actually engaging, listening, tuning in. It's almost a non-existent art. Everything is PowerPoints, visualizations, videos. Every 12 seconds you need something to distract people because the attention span is basically 12 and a half seconds. Huh? Three seconds? Three and a half seconds? Three and a half seconds. Okay. Okay. I stand corrected. I was overestimating. It's worse than you thought. Okay. That's the Rekuda. So a Mela, it's not going in. What has to happen for me to grasp an idea that transcends me, that eludes me? What has to happen is my walls have to be shattered. The cup has to expand its horizons. That is the definition of Bittu. I'm going to ask you now a question. Look at any moment you had an epiphany. Reflect at the moments preceding the epiphany and you will see that you were in a state where your mind was completely engaged in trying to figure out the idea, usually by daydreaming about it, to the extent that you weren't even conscious that you were trying to figure it out, because if you were conscious that you were trying to figure it out, you're not trying to figure it out because you're thinking that you're trying to figure it out. Usually Chachma happens in a moment when you are completely dedicated to finding the truth of the idea, and then what that does is it creates an intellectual humility that breaks down the intellectual ego of the human mind, 
and it allows for something beyond me to enter into my intellectual space. And that is why I could never force Chachma. I could never say, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to get it. Whenever you try to do that, it usually never happens. Why? Because as long as you're present and you're going to get it, you will never get it. For Chachma to happen, it has to get you. You can't get it. As long as there's a you, you won't get it because the you is the problem. And since the you is the problem, you will never get it. Or as Einstein said, never will the solution to a problem come if we do not change the paradigms which created the problem. In other words, you have to completely think differently in order to be able to find out that which will allow you to leave the problem. So that's why if I'm trying to prepare for it, it's not going to happen. When does Chachma usually happen? By surprise, spontaneously. But if you look back, you will see you were sitting on the couch, and for the last six minutes, or ten minutes, or thirty minutes, you were daydreaming about this question. You didn't even realize you were thinking about it. In other words, you were so submerged in the idea, that you didn't even realize that you were so submerged in the idea, which means there was no self-consciousness whatsoever. You know what else happens? You're frustrated with yourself, and you're annoyed with your limitation. You're like, I, 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 I am frustrated that I can't get it. You know what that does is, it shatters the ego of your intellect. You are completely focused on getting it, what happens is that is bittel. Bittel means that acknowledgement, that truth transcends my present comprehension, the frustration with my present comprehension, the need, the feeling that I want to look up and I want to get it, that is koyach ma. The koyach to say, what? I don't know what. Tell me. I don't get this. I am, I am clueless. That recognition and the frustration that comes with it, that is the ability that allows you to break down the walls of your intellectual ego and open yourself up to something beyond yourself. And that is always when the insight will come in. You can't force it, but it will always come in after there has been complete dedication of the mind to the idea, seeking only the idea and nothing else, and realizing the humility and limitations of my wisdom. And that's when it comes in. You know why it comes in then? Because my walls have been removed and the keli has been broadened and the cup has expanded, the cup has expanded and allows something beyond it to come in. But because it required the bittle of my keli, therefore I can't explain it, I can't write it, I can't share it because I am not present. In a moment of chachma, you are not present. It's like almost a light that shines in and you're not there. So if somebody says, tell me what happened, I don't know what happened. I just know that something happened. Right then, you cannot articulate it. You know why? Because you did not get it. It got you. Then comes Bina. What is Bina? Bina is you reassert your intellectual identity and you assimilate the insight into your intellectual faculties. And then you can write it, communicate it, articulate You will see an interesting thing. People will always crave to re-experience the moment of the epiphany, the moment of the insight. The reason is because there was a clarity then that you will never be able to reclaim. Unless you wrote it down right then, it's usually six, seven words, you will never be able to reclaim it. Even though you wrote a paper on it and you explained it and you gave a shear on it, that single moment of inspiration, there was a clarity that you will never be able to reclaim because when the lightning comes... 
there is a light that is awesome. After that, you light a match based on that light. The match may sustain you longer because you light a candle, but it'll never have that intensity. Chachma will have a clarity that Bina will never have. You know why? Because in Chachma, the relationship was defined by the idea, not by you. And in Bina, the relationship is defined by you, not by the idea. So in Chachma, you are surrendering to the idea. In Bina, the idea surrenders to you. Once the idea surrenders to you, it never has that same quality and pristine clarity like there is in Chachma. In fact, in Zoyer it says that Chachma is Oyer and Chayshech is Bina. Bina is Chayshech. Why is Bina Chayshech? Because Bina is already not the idea in its purity. It's the idea the way it was integrated into your details, into your faculties. Now it's beautiful to operate on a level of Chachma always. The problem is you can't operate on a level of Chachma because there's no you to operate. Chachma is a space of Bittl. Chachma is a space of Ah, of nullification. Chachma is a space where I am not present, and that's why I can grasp things that transcend my intellectual faculties, because there's no I obstructing the flow. But I cannot, I cannot stay in that space. So Bina, I reassert myself, but I now take the information that I got as a result of the epiphany, and I assimilate it, into my intellectual identity, so I can talk about it, I can prove it, I can explain it, but it will never have that same pure pristineness that Chachma has. Although it has its own Milus. The Milus is, it's developed, it's integrated, it's long-standing. Chachma will never last for more than a few seconds. You know why? Because it's a transcendental experience. It's not part of your keli. It's, it's, it's a sublime experience. Another thing, Chachma will never be more than a few words, ever. Because it defies oisius, it defies containers, it never comes with elaboration. Elaboration is always based on restricted, restricted energy. The more oisius, the less er, the more er, the less oisius. It's like the deeper an emotion is intense, the less words you'll have for it. Ask somebody who just experienced a crazy emotion, they can't talk about it, it takes them years to talk about it. They cry, they sing, they dance, they jump, they holler. Why can't they talk? Because oisius are containers. Chachma never comes in a lot of oisius. It'll come six, seven, eight words. That's it. Very rarely will it come more. Edison once said that all invention is uh, 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Chachma is inspiration. Bina is perspiration. Chachma is an event. Bina is a process. Chachma, it has you. Bina, you have it. In Chachma, the I becomes subservient to the truth of the idea. In Bina, the truth of the idea becomes subservient to you. That's why Chachma is Koyachma. It's the Koyach to say what. That's a very deep Koyach. The ability to really say what. Just what. I, I know nothing. Tell me. That openness that yearning, that pining, and that complete singular dedication without any distractions to discover truth, that's what allows truth to enter into your airspace. Without that, nothing is coming into my airspace. I'm too blocked. There's an expression in old Svarim, kol gay shaita. Now, gay in Hebrew is not gay in English. Even gay in English is not gay in English. You know, gay was a nice, is a nice English word. It means happy. Right? Gaily, yeah. In old literature. It's been hijacked. But I'm not going there now. 
But gay in, in, in Russian Kodesh is Gimel Yud Aleph. It means from the word uh, Gaiva. So there's an expression, Kol Gay, Gay Yud Aleph. Kol Gay Shaita. What's Pshat? Why is an arrogant person a fool? We all know arrogant people who may be very, very smart. In fact, their wisdom breeds their arrogance, but it's not true. By, it's, it's, it's not a prediction, it's not a nevuah, it's not a religious statement, it's a fact. If you're arrogant, you're a shaita be'etzem, you have no choice. Because the prerequisite for true wisdom is humility. Real arrogant people are also very stupid people, even though they may be brilliant, but they're still stupid be'etzem. Because arrogance is the greatest obstruction to true learning. They will remain completely stuck in whatever they get, but there's no evolving. There's absolutely no evolving. Because they're stuck in their confined reality. The definition of learning is humility. It's not only a prerequisite as a zgula. It's not a zgula. It's the definition. Because chachma is koyachma. Chachma is bittel. That is chachma. When the ear space opens up, something higher than it can come in. As long as the cup insists on having these walls, fine. But you're going to get your seven ounces. You can't get anything else. So you'll stick to that. And anything else doesn't exist or is crazy. Because you have, back to the net, you have the holes in your net, and that's it. You won't shrink them and you won't expand them. This is reality. If it fits into this, it's reality. It doesn't fit into this, it's not reality. I don't go there. Now let's face it, most of us will not even go there. Because who wants to experience a clash? You don't need something banging against the walls. The walls. But those who are sensitive to these things, you can almost feel sometimes ideas banging against the wall and they can't go in. <laughs> you can almost feel like you're learning and it, it, it's, it's near me, but it can't go in. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. So Shiva once, I knew his name was, he lived in Lud, he was a big Talmud Chachem. So there was a Bach who came over to him once in Beis Medrash and he asked him, Pshat and Toysvus. So he explained it to him. And he says it again. Again, three times, and he So the boy starts crying. So the Shiva goes, out, takes him, and gives him a, a kiss. He says, Now I understand. Now I understand. So sometimes you have an emotional, an emotional block. But a person could feel the information cannot settle. Not, I could say the words of the Sedeknishtarai. I'm not toifeset. For this, two things have to happen. First of all, you have to realize you're not toifes things. I used to, I never thought that it's something that has to be spoken about, but I realized it's a very important idea. People today don't realize they don't grasp things. You'll ask some, somebody will be sitting at a shear, let's say in Yeshiva Atabach, you understood? Of course. It's almost a godless today for somebody to say, I didn't understand a word. But it's very important. How many Bachim you think in a shir, in the yeshivas, understand the shir? The shir is about a Shagasarye, a Reb Chaim, a Birch Shmuel, a Chidusha, a Granat, a Kivega, whatever it is, a Ktsos. But the kid can't read a Mishnah, can't read Chumash and Rashi. They tell me he understood the shir. But I can't say I don't understand. How do you say that? It's a ten shot and some shidduch. So sometimes people sit in an environment for 40, 50, 60 years, they'll never say they don't understand. They think they understand, and maybe they understand a little bit, they really don't get it. In other words, the prerequisite of all understanding is, I don't understand anything. I don't take anything for granted. I start from scratch. 
Tell me, I don't know anything. Why, what, when. The stupid questions are always the best questions. Called klotzkashas. That's number one, the prerequisite to be able to say, I don't understand anything. But that's, that doesn't mean you understand yet. <laughs> that's the hachana, to be able to ask, to be able to get frustrated, to be able to grow. That's chachma. That's why chachma is the nekud of hmm? You understood? Yeah, no. <laughs> chachma is something that comes and it goes. If you don't hold on to it, it's, uh, nothing comes from it. And you need the woman to, uh, the mother, so to speak, to nurture it. Yeah. So Torah is actually Chachmasesh Lakadish Baruch So in Chachma, there is a unique expression of godliness because of the quality of Bittl. The definition of Hashem is oneness. It's everything. In other words, this is a very important idea. If God is not everything, if God doesn't amount to everything... He amounts to nothing at all. In other words, if it's God, right? If it's real God, so then it's it's connected to everything. It's in everything. It's it's the reality of everything. If it's not everything, it's just where I'm comfortable. Or when I get into a religious mood, or when I get OCD, or whatever it is. So then it ultimately amounts it amounts to nothing. It doesn't have that real significance. It's just my own shtick. It's God created in man, as Rav Shemshin Rafal says, that Bereshus teaches God is created, man is created in God's image, not God is created in man's image. Many gods are created in man's image. I decide what it is, and I create my God, and then I call it God, and it works very well because it's my God. And I'll fight for it, but I'm really fighting for myself. I'm fighting for my shtick. So uh, the concept of, of God is something that he defines reality on his terms, not I define it on my terms. And it can't be relegated to say, oh, here, yeah, and here, not. In other words, if it's God, it's connected to everything. If not, it's not God, it's something else. So therefore, Gilui of Ein Saif is always in a place where there's going to be bittel, where there's going to be a presence of openness. That's where there's going to be a gilu of insight. In other words, the moment there is arrogance, the moment there is haughtiness, the moment there is self-centeredness, and mainly agendas, bias, then it's already not a place where Hashem could be revealed. Because Hashem is everything. Everything means everything. The only thing that can block it is me. So if my me blocks it, so ultimately there can be a gilu of insight. Somebody once told me that when they go to 12-step meetings, recovery meetings, they feel God there always. They asked, why is it that they feel God there? I told them, because Hashem dwells with his bittel. And every person sitting in that group, their life has been shattered. They, de- they destroyed their life through their addictions. Because of that, there's a tremendous bittel in that room. There's a lot of chachma in that room. Because when somebody, didn't, when somebody thinks their life is fine... So they don't need the bittel. Chachma only comes when you're frustrated with what you don't understand, because you realize your limitations in life too. When somebody shattered and destroyed his life, unfortunately, for whatever reason, sadly, and admits it. I'm not talking people who are in denial. People who are in denial, that's, God is not there. Denial is a river in Egypt. <laughs> it's part of Gullus. But uh, we're talking about in a place where there is re- real acknowledgement of mistakes and real vulnerability. In other words, people are naked. 
in the sense of they strip themselves from all the nice stuff. You know, when we sit and talk, so everyone, we, we wear masks, we say nice things. But imagine there was a situation, and there are situations when people are completely open, open about everything. So then what happens here, there's no ego. Nobody's protecting themselves. When nobody's protecting themselves, the defenses are down, then there will always be automatic. It's almost automatic. There will be an, a gilly of eight, because ain't Soif is here. You don't need to bring God here. God is here. Kotzke Rebbe famously, the story, when he was a child, right? Somebody asked, who is God? Where is Hashem? Everybody was saying everywhere. They say the Kotzke Rebbe, when he came once out to his chasen, there's different versions of the story. But the version that I'll tell you right now is that he came out to his Hasidim one, the Kotzke Rebbe, and he said, Vu is God, where is Hashem? So they said, what do you mean? Hashem is everywhere. He said, nay, nay. God is v'molastam arayin. God is where he's let in, where he's allowed in. Now he wasn't arguing with a Pasuk, Maloy Chalaretz Kvaydeh, the Kotzke Rebbe knew that Pasuk. He also davened Shachras, and he also knew the original, which is Yeshaya Hanavi. What he was explaining is, but it doesn't mean it has to do with you. You may not feel it. Right? Like we learned about Saiv of Kalam. You have to let him in. How do you let him in? That's Chachma. Chachma means you let him in. How do you let him in? The first you say to let him in is Bittl. Self effacement. Huh? Not towards God, towards yourself. Fine. There's bittel on, on, on there's millions and billions and endless madregas of bittel. But the tzad, I'm just bringing out a certain nekuda. This doesn't mean everything in the twelve steps is holy, and it doesn't mean every nekuda in the twelve steps is holy. But it's sometimes a lot holier than what happens outside of the twelve steps. Let's put it that way. I'm bringing out one nekuda that when people are completely vulnerable and they have to be vulnerable because because the gear, the masks weren't working. For other people, the masks work. For them, it didn't work. They lie to themselves, they lie to their families, they lie to their spouses, they lie to their children, they destroy themselves. There was a young man who came to me from uh, one, one of the very, you know, observant Jewish neighborhoods, not far from here, and uh, tremendous, tremendous suffering from tremendous addiction to very immoral uh, behavior. So, uh, this is a father, a wife, 11 kids, not a newly married fellow, a bochetel, comes from a family, uh, very prominent uh, family, and a lot of children, and Rosh Yeshivas, the works. So he told me something very, very, it was very moving. He said that, uh, that what brought him back, what brought him to recovery was, listen to this, he was sitting and gambling in Atlantic City, and it was, it was late afternoon. He was drinking and gambling. And somebody came over to him and said, It's Yom Kippur today. It's Yom Kippur today. I'm surprised that a man like you is here. He says he looked at the clock. It was 6 o'clock, which is the time when you start Ne'ilah. So he was thinking to himself that if the time when you start Ne'ilah, he's sitting in Atlantic City, drinking uh, yayin, whatever type of wine it was, and gambling, he's pretty bad. <laughs> and that's when he realized that he hit rock bottom. And the next day he went, he went for help. In other words, he had to feel that Ne'ila has become completely irrelevant as a result of his addiction. Now, when, once that happens, you become a vulnerable man. You're not protecting anything because your mask is not working. 
you feel your busha. And in a paradoxical way, that moment becomes the best moment. Because that's the moment when you're forced to strip away all the protective gear that allows you to be masked and camouflaged and disguised and live your lie. We are enabled because the lie works. And even if it doesn't work, we think it works. And even if we don't think it's, it works, we tell ourselves that we think it works. You understand what I'm saying, right? And even if we stop telling that to ourselves, other addicts tell us that it works. So you're in this web that you can't get out of. The Nekuda, this is the, I'm explaining to you Chachman at different levels, but that's the Nekuda, the moment that, that uh, you got nothing. You got nothing, it's not working. And therefore what happens? You're broken. But you know what happens? You become open. You become open. Why? Because the walls are not there anymore. There's nothing to protect you. In that openness of vulnerability, when you say to quote the Gemara, Heilach, Hareshel Chalofanecha, of Metziah, you tell Hashem, here I am. Here's your naked child who has nothing. Just a vulnerable, broken self. In a very profound way, that becomes a moment of Gilui Hashchina. Even though you don't feel it at the moment because you're in that mode of brokenness. But retroactively, you will discover that that was your moment of redemption, your moment of recovery. That's the pshat in, in, in Sifri Chsidis, that Mashiach was born on the moment of the Chorban. The Gemara says in Yume Bishasha Nichnasu Nachram Lahechel, Ro Kruvim Urin Zebaza. The Gemara in Yume, Dafnandala, they went in and they saw the Kruvim intertwined. Frek the Gemara, all the Rishonim, it's a very interesting suge. The Gemara says that the Kruvim were intertwined when the Zivug between Hashem and the Jewish people was the most powerful. The time of the Churban was the worst relationship. The Gemara says the Kruvim used to look at each other when the relationship was good. They would turn away from it. Like a husband and wife, you know, you get the eye treatment. You know, she stops looking at you, you don't talk. So the Kruvim were a replica of that. Suddenly, by the Churban, the Kruvim are intertwined. doesn't make sense. So there's a lot of different Beyurim. The Magad of Mizrich said, the Bnei Sascha brings it from the Magad, the Gemara says in Yevamas, When a person is going on a journey, the night before he has to be together with his wife, because since he's leaving her alone, and it's difficult for a wife to be without a husband, may not be difficult for a husband, but it's difficult for a wife, that was just a joke, maybe not. So therefore, he has to be there for his wife the night before. Why? Because he's going on a journey. So the Magid says... During the Churban Beis Hamikdash, the Rebbeinu Shalom was going on a very long journey. So before that, you have to be together with your wife. So that was the Nachr, the Kruvim coming together. That was the intimacy during the Churban. But that's, it goes a step deeper. From intimacy, there's conception. Which, what was conceived? The Neshama of Mashiach. That's why on Tisha B'av we say Nachem. The Paiskim all bring because Mashiach was born on Tishbab. Mashiach was on Tishbab, couldn't find a better day. But that's the Vart. The Chlifka, this Ishtai, created the conception of Gul. Okay. So it's, 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 it's nice, it's Vadim. But what does this mean practically? In psychological terms, what it means is the moment of ultimate devastation, when one can't escape the Churban, that's the moment Mashiach is born. Even though that's a moment of grief, it's not a moment of jubilation. It's when Gullus begins. But the awareness that Gullus began, 
in such a frightening fashion means that redemption was born. Why? Because the walls of denial were shattered. And the moment the walls of denial were shattered, the person is open and says, I got nothing. Oh, you got nothing? Now God can be present. Why? Because Hashem can only be present where there's nothing blocking. What's blocking? Blocking is anything outside of God's oneness. So therefore the steerit to Gilei Hashchina is not Averis, that's step B. The steerit is ego, the false ego. Because if I, then it's not him. And the definition of him is all. The definition of Hashem is oneness. That's why you'll never see here the term, very, you will, but very seldom, Rebbeinu Shalaylam. The term that's going to be used constantly, which you probably noticed, is Ein Soif Baruch Why Ein Soif Baruch Hu? means the master of the world. God is the master of the world. But Ein Soif is a step deeper. Ein Soif means infinity. Infinity means where is infinity? Where is it not? That's the point. Infinity is not nowhere. Infinity means wherever there's something, it's part of it. The Yisoyed of Klippa means that you're detached from Ein Soif. If it's ain't soif, there's no space that's devoid of it. Leisa sar ponemine. Leisa sar ponemine means there's no space devoid of it. If I say, I'm so, so bad, I cannot experience God. We think when we say we're very bad, that's when we experience God. You tell a, a yeshiva bacha, you tell a girl, you, you're so bad, they can experience God. It's the other way around. When I say I'm so bad, what I'm saying is God is not here with me because I'm so bad. So that means I deny the person from experiencing Hashem. Ein Soif means he's right now in you, in, in your space. So whenever you're in a mode of nothingness, what do we mean by nothingness? Nothingness in the sense that there's an empty space that you allow him to be here, that's Gili Hashchina. Where can that happen most? In Chachma, where the other faculties already represent more self-assertion. But Chachma, by definition, is Koyachma. So that's the Indian of Bittu. And in a recovery room, that's usually very palpable. Because if people are real, we're not talking if people are coming there to fake, we usually after a few times they'll quit if they're fake, because it's very intense. So therefore, in such situations of vulnerability, you will always feel some holiness. Why? Because where there's no ego, there is God. Any questions? Okay. Same idea. Gemara in Makkas, the end of Masech to Makkas. Shuol Yoytzeh Bebeis Kotshe HaKadoshim. Akiva Nechamtonu, Akiva Nechamtonu. They cried because they said, how can a fox come out of this place? Hazor HaKariv Yumas. The Gemara says in Makkas, uh, uh, used to be a Yisrael goes in here, he dies, and now foxes are Shuolam Hilchubah. So the Akiva says, Lekachani Masache. That which makes you cry, that itself makes me laugh. It's not what makes me laugh is I'm thinking about something else. You know, the pessimist and the optimist, the famous joke, right? You take them both and you put them in a room full of horse manure. So the pessimist is not by crying and the optimist says, there's got to be a pony here. There's so much, whatever, there has to be a pony here. You know? So the boy is, he's looking for something else. The Chiddush Erebakiv is, no, that which makes you cry makes me laugh. Not because I'm naive. Because in the very same reality, I see the birth. I see rebirth also. The very same reality is uh, in Hilchas Shabbos we have, right? Kolam Akalkal and Pturin. Unless you're Soiser or Menas Livnas. Minakari, only liable to bring a carbon chata if you're demolishing a house because you want to renovate. If you stop demolishing a house because you're bored, 
or you uh, whatever destructive, then you're not chayiv in Shabbos. I mean that menatayda. The kalkal is potter. If you soser al menas livenus, you're chayiv. Why? You're demolishing. You're mekalkal. The answer is when you're demolishing in order to renovate. It's not demolishing, it's renovation. Renovation includes two phases. Phase number one is demolition. Phase number two is construction. Unfortunately, we get stuck in phase one with most contractors, present company excluded. But, uh, but, but, soiser amanas livenis, so it's not stira. There's a Lashni Rishonim. High stira binyan mikri. Demolition is called construction. And psychologically, it's also true. Demolition of the structure is sometimes the greatest prerequisite and is part and parcel of construction. Why? Because it allows you to build something real, something authentic. So Torah is Chachma. Chachma ilah, where you have the gilu of Ein Saif. And then you have the mazel, which expresses itself in the Torah down here that we have which is like Olam HaAsiyah, because Torah has all these layers that the soul has. And each level of Torah is a deeper depth in the same Torah, just like we spoke about Atzillah's Bri Yitzir It's the same reality, seeing it from different perspectives. That's how Torah works. But yet the highest Torah and the lowest Torah are all one. Like the soul and the body and the superconscious soul, it's one soul. We don't have a hundred souls. The question is if we're conscious of it or not conscious. So one person could be learning the same Shtikl Gemara, what he sees in this Gemara, is what the neshama of Atzillus will see when he looks at a tree, versus somebody else who will just see the externalities of it, and both are true. Rabbi Meir Shapiro used to say, the Gemara says in the Sukkah, that uh, Hillel Azakan had 80 Talmidim. The oldest was Yonis and Benuzil. The youngest was Rebbechel and Benzaka. Omro Lava Yonis and Benuzil, that every bird that would fly over his learning would get burnt. So Rabbi Meir Shapiro would say, and Anna, the two Bachim were learning the Gemara. So one bacha is like, wow, wow, what a story. Oif Sheperech, of Nistra, of the Kedusha, of Yonis and Benazil, the Dvekas of Yonis and Benazil. His friend says, you don't get the point. It's not the point. The Shaila that I'm thinking about is, is Yonis and Benazil chayef to pay for the bird? <laughs> because he's learning and the bird got burnt. So is it called Grama? Is it called Garmi? Are you chayef b'dinei Shamayim? Are you chayef b'dinei Adam? Are you potter completely? You're learned, and as a result of your holiness, the oif got burnt, and it belongs to you. Do you have to pay for the oif? <laughs> yeah, missed the point. Huh? He missed the point. He missed the point, right? Technically, it's a shayla, but he missed the point. Because he saw only the most external of external layers. He didn't get the pnimius of it. He didn't get the pnimius of it. So it's not that the pnimius is not, he's just not conscious of it. I'm just giving a dogma. Two people could read the same line. One sees one thing, another sees... The same is true in every Indian in Torah. And it's layers upon layers upon layers. We learned in the Purim Maimir that Vaidabah Shloshes Allah and Moshe Shlem could explain every sugan on 3,000 levels. And they were all reflections of each other. A Moshel for a Nimshel for another Moshel for another Moshel, Nimshel, Nimshel, all the way 3,000. And really, it's Litvul Nasayim Mispah. So B'meila, it starts with Chachmeilah, which is Hashem's Chachm, which is one with Him, more than any other sphere because Chachm is Bittal. And then it shrickles down into the Torah that we have, Begashmi, is that's the power of Torah. So any Nekudah person learns Torah, it has it. How conscious I am of it? That's a question of life. How conscious are you of what you're seeing, of what you're learning, of what you're experiencing? Just like in yourself. 
how conscious of you are how conscious are you of your internal experiences being reflected in your external emotions or sensations sometimes there's a cutoff a person completely doesn't sense the flow and sometimes there is a flow and one could sense at least some elements of the flow there's some awe as a result of the mazl even though you can't experience it in your totality because it would be too too intense unlike the neil so he says right you see Tezayin, it's a second column, Tezayin, and all of the line starts Begashmis, probably 10, 15 lines from the top, the line starts Begashmis. There's a famous expression in Zoyar that there are three knots that connect one with the other. The Zoyar says, Yisrael by Raisa, and Raisa by Kutchabrichu. The Jew is knotted to Torah, and Torah is knotted to Hashem. It's famous, by the way, the expression Yisrael, or Raisa by Kutchabrichu, Kulachat, doesn't say in Zayar. It's it's a lashon of Yidin. The sword, the closest source in Zayar is this Zayar. Tlas kishin miskashran dabeda. It's interesting to know that expression we don't have in Zayar, although everyone quotes it from the Zayar. But this is something very similar. There's three knots. The Jew is knotted to Torah, and Torah is knotted to Hashem. So as a result of that, they're knotted together. In Zoya Bamidbar on the Pasik, he calls the Jewish people Chayol in their eyes, which really means the soldiers of Torah, the legions, the, the troops of Torah. What's the Kshakas? Kisamach Ribi Yosisa Torah, Hain Shader Shamaka Samach Ribi Neshamas Israel, called Oyes Shader Shamaka Neshama Achas. The 600,000 letters of the Sefer Torah are the source of the 600,000 Jewish souls. Every letter in the Torah is a Shadish of a Neshama. Now there's more than 600,000 Jews. But as it's explained in Tanya, in Perek Lamed Zion, 600,000 souls are root souls. But just like the root of a tree can have many branches, one neshama can have many branches. You can have a thousand neshamas that are rooted in one place. So you can have different Jews. So although we're one people, like we're one garden, but we come from different trees. So family members might be branches from one root. Or certain neshamas that are deeply connected because they come from one root. So this is the idea, even though it's different branches, but this Shishim Ribbon Nisham is Klolis, and each Nisham is rooted in one letter in a Torah. Now some people can open a Torah and they could recognize their eyes in the Torah. Usually you can't, but every Nisham has its eyes in Torah. Or Mikiv, as he says, since every Nisham has a Makar Nisham Torah, so Be'esek HaTorah Lamata, Ta'odir Shadosh Nishmasi Lamayi Lepchines Mazel. So when a Jew learns Torah down here, it triggers the shoyrish of his neshama, l'mayla, the mazl of his neshama. To bring forth the revelation of the presence of the Infinite One, which is manifested in Chachmila, the highest Chachma Hashem's Chachma, the source of Torah, which is also the root and the foundation of the neshama and the mountains of holiness, that this gilui of Chachma should be expressed in the mazl of the shayrish haneshama, the tipple of eme vafachat vacharad the gedalim apne gilui erin seif baruch umamish, the pchines mazlayu the chazi. As a result of this, there would be there's a tremendous awe in Torah because of the gilui in the mazl. In other words, the kesher between the Jew and Torah is down here. Every Jew is rooted in a Sefer Torah. Every Jew has a letter in the Torah. Like it says in the Megala, Mukas Yisrael is, Yesh, Shishim, Ribui, Oisius, Latayda. 
every Jew is rooted in the Torah. But the Kesher doesn't begin down here. Like everything, it evolves from the Kesher up there. Because the Shoyrish of the Neshama comes from Chachma of Hashem. That's the source of Torah. So the Jew and Torah are essentially connected. Torah comes from Chachma, the Neshama comes from Chachma. So here's what happens. When I learn Torah down here, so what happens? It, it trickles down, but it also trickles up. You know, you pull a rope. Yaakov you pull a rope. The rope may travel thousands of miles. You pull it down here, there will be an effect on every level. On every level of the rope will come down. You throw the rock into the water, there'll be the ripple effect that will go and go and go and continue. What do they say? As the butterfly flaps its wings, there is an avalanche, uh, right? There's a windstorm uh, in New Zealand or in Japan because ultimately it's affected. The neshama down here, when it connects to Torah, so on every level of the neshama and on every level of Torah, there becomes a relationship. So the oil that shines in Chachma of Torah will be in the source, the mazel of Torah, will immediately shine in the mazel of the neshama. So what happens when a Jew learns Torah is that the superconscious force of the neshama is completely overwhelmed by the energy of the Torah in its source, which trickles or is revealed in the mazel. Down here, I don't experience that full intensity of it. But here's what the Gemara says, because my conscious soul is rooted in my superconscious soul. My conscious soul is rooted in Torah, and my superconscious soul is rooted in the Torah above. So therefore, down here also, there is an experience from the mazl of the neshama, which experiences the gili of Chachman and Torah. And that's what the Gemara says in Brachas. Just like Matan Torah, there was tremendous awe. So every time a Jew learns Torah, there's tremendous awe. What does this mean? So the Balatanya is explaining what this means. Because what happens by Limud HaTorah is that the mazel of the neshama, when somebody's open to this, they have to be sensitive. What's happening is the mazel of the neshama is experiencing the full revelation of God in Chachma of Torah, which is connected to the Chachma of the neshama, or trickles down, down here. So there's a tremendous aim of a fachat v'charad because of the gewaldik gilui that happens right then through Limud HaTorah. Through Limud HaTorah. So b'meila, b'meila. This is the continuation of the discussion of Soiviv Kalalman versus Mamalik Kalalman, right? This is what he began this parak with. That Soiviv Kalalman is that energy which no thought can detect and no thought could grasp, like we spoke of the marshal of the holes of the net. We cannot grasp it because it's beyond being restricted to our state of consciousness. But nonetheless, there is a concept called Mazlayu Chazi. What's Mazlayu Chazi? That the Etzem Haneshama, like we spoke Mamali and Soiviv, are relative. So the etzem haneshama, which is higher than the sensory soul, is not enclosed in the body. What do we mean it's not enclosed? Not enclosed in the body doesn't mean it's not in the body. It's not felt by the body. It's not the consciousness that I'm aware of. It's not the I that I'm going to write in my resume. <laughs> when you tell me who I am, when you ask me who I am, there's what I can tell you. There's what I don't want to tell you, but I could tell you. And then there is what I'd like to tell you, but I can't tell you because I don't know exactly what it is, and then there's that which I don't even know that I don't know what it is. And that's really the majority of your personality. <laughs> right? The majority of your personality is exactly that. And that's, what, that's, what's, called, that's what's called your mazel, but it trickles down into the soul that's in the body. So when the mazel of the neshama is chazi, when it sees an experience, which we would call soiviv because it's above, 
sensory and consciousness, it creates an awe and a reverence and a dread in the person because it's overwhelming. That's, that's the concept of Eisek HaToyra because since the Ein Soiv dwells in Chachmei Law, which is Toyra, and through the Torah, this gets expressed in the Mazla of the Neshama Lamaila, which is rooted in Torah. So it affects a person even here. This is what some Jews experience when they are learning Torah, because this is what Torah is. Ah, he's learning about a halacha. He's learning about a halacha, technical halacha. What Yida, what Mazla, what Mali, what Sever. Now, God is not even mentioned in the halacha. He's still learning about a technical thing, making Cheshboinus, making Yinyanim. But that's the outer layer of it. This is the same Torah is really a reflection of something deep. Because here he's talking about the Vart of Daniel. That it's, it's so... It's so Simcha comes from a sense of, of, of expansiveness, of comfort. Yira comes from a sense of awe, of reverence, something overwhelming. Something completely beyond me creates the true of... Ava simcha is a true of closeness. I feel close. Here is, I feel awe. I feel my smallness. I feel the distance that creates year. And uh, and it's two different tenuas. Whenever there's a gili of soiv of kalalman on any level, it generates usually a sense of a sense of year, a sense of bittel, a sense of awe in the presence of that which is like wow unknown. Where Simcha, on the contrary, is, is self-assertion. It's, it's the Hispashtas HaNefesh and so forth. The next year, the Israel Hashem will be on Monday. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.